You're listening to The Venue Podcast. The Venue is a worship gathering at Southcrest Baptist Church. We hope that this podcast helps you find your greatest pleasure and purpose in Jesus. It's good to see you. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2, where we will pick up at verse 8. Title of our time together is Poetry in Motion. Poetry in Motion, Gospel Grace for Your Endurance. We are working our way through this very, very personal letter written by the Apostle Paul to his spiritual son, Timothy. Uh, Now, before we read, which we will in just a moment, uh, I want you to know we have an incredibly rich passage before us this morning. It is rich in its contents, what it contains. Uh, It is rich, I believe, also for what it teaches us, and it is rich for what it commands us to do. So look at verse 8 with me. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we also will live with him. If we endure, we also reign with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. If we are faithless, He remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. If you would, join me as we pray. Father, we have a beautiful passage before us this morning, and so I pray for myself as we walk through it and think through it and as I proclaim it. Father, uh, I know there are young minds and older minds and everything in between here in this room this morning, so I pray that you would help us to grasp the realities of this text, even, Lord, as a feeble servant feeling like uh, the attention and work we put in, I've put in towards this is is almost unjust. So, Father, I pray that you would speak to your people according to your will for your glory in our time together. In Jesus' name, amen. I really have enjoyed reading and studying this letter with you. Uh, In fact, it has become one of my favorite pieces of Pauline literature, primarily because of the context behind it. Uh, Paul may not have known it, but this ended up indeed being his very last letter. And this is his last written effort to his spiritual son and partner in crime, Timothy, where he aims to encourage him and direct him in his own spiritual ministry as he ministers to the saints in the city of Ephesus. We have seen so much already in this sermon series. This is part six. And Paul is awaiting execution in a Roman prison cell. In truth, Paul, uh, his earthly ministry doesn't look good from here. But if you think about it for Paul personally, the future looks quite exciting, considering the fact that once Paul departs from this earth, he will be in the presence of his Savior, Jesus Christ. 
The book of 2 Timothy can really be broken into two main sections. The first part is Paul's effort to remind Timothy of his calling. Paul aims to encourage him to continue on in this journey no matter what happens. And he also seeks to remind Timothy to teach others the truth about Jesus. And the second section of this letter, which we'll hit at the second half of chapter 2 and on into chapter 3, Paul will deal with false doctrines and corrupt teachers, and we'll hear more on that in the coming weeks ahead. Now, one of the things that is so wonderful about the Bible is that we are able to look at other books and connect the dots and figure out timelines of uh, who did what, where, and when. And in the case of Paul and Timothy, we can go to Acts chapter 16 to receive a little bit of insight into who Timothy was and how these two men met. Verses 1 through 5 of Acts 16 actually tell us that Timothy was raised by his mother, who was a Jewish believer. And his father was a Greek, which means his father was not a believer. Or at least we are able to speculate that confidently. So Timothy is a believer of the faithfulness, or because of the faithfulness, of his mother and his grandmother. And how did they do that? What did they do? They saturated Timothy with the Bible. They saturated Timothy in the Old Testament scriptures. So mothers, let this be a word of encouragement to you or mothers-to-be. You matter. Your position in God's ordained picture role as a family matters. So use this time under God's provision and grace to not only saturate your own life, with the word of God, but saturate the life of your children with his word, knowing that even if you don't get to see it, the side of heaven, it has profound impacts on not only your children, but this world. And so Paul meets Timothy, as we see in Acts 16, and he sees great potential in Timothy and decides to take him along with him on missionary journeys to preach this gospel and to help start new Jesus communities. And you can imagine what kind of impact this had on the life of young Timothy. In fact, as I've studied this and walked through this together uh, with you in the last few weeks, I've come to the conclusion that in one way or another, Timothy is like an adopted son to Paul. I believe this because I'm a man myself who has sovereignly and providentially not had consistent father figures in my own life. It's not the way I chose it to be, but that's the way God has allowed it to be. Because of that, I love the tone of this letter. I love how Paul speaks to Timothy. I love how he shares his heart with Timothy. I love how he aims to encourage his son in life and encourage his protege in ministry. I think the biggest themes that we've touched on so far in our time together on Sunday mornings is this. Number one, Paul tells Timothy, do not be ashamed of the gospel. Number two, as we will see this morning, remember Jesus Christ. Dear friends, if I could summarize the second letter in just a couple of sentences, I think I would say it this way. Timothy, they've persecuted me for preaching the gospel. Do the same. Timothy, they've put me in prison for preaching the gospel. Do the same. Timothy... They're putting me on trial again, and they're probably going to execute me for preaching the gospel. Do the same. Now, 
Before we walk through this passage together, I, I wanted to spend a couple of moments, uh, if you'll indulge me, if, if you will, to untie a couple of knots. I, I took this idea from one of my favorite preachers and pastors, Steve Lawson, who pastors a church in Dallas, Texas. He said, sometimes we come to, in our Bible study or in preaching sermon series, we come to sometimes knots that have to be untied. And I'd like to look at a couple with you this morning. I want to tie a couple of knots that you may or may not see as we have read through this text and as we walk through it here in just a few moments. Now, these knots that I want to untie aren't necessarily on the surface, but I believe they're lying underneath the surface as we consider what this text really deals with. Now, since the gospel is of utmost importance to the Apostle Paul, he aims to make sure that Timothy is aware of these threats that he's going to face and that he'll be able to stand firm through them. Now, since we are reading this letter roughly 2,000 years after it was written, it's hard for us to put ourselves in a position of feeling like our lives are threatened for believing in Jesus. And it's not my intention this morning to make you feel a certain way about how easy your life has been, nor do I want to guilt you for not experiencing some form of persecution in your own spiritual journey. That is not my heart and my aim this morning. But what I think is important to do is for a few moments address gospel threats in our current context in our world today. Now, many of you in this room will more than likely not be imprisoned for your faith. Although it is entirely possible, especially in this day and age, because we've seen it happen in the last couple of years. But the threats that you and I face today come in different shapes and sizes. The issues that Christians face today are many. In fact, there are threats and new issues that arise every day for Christians in the church. So I want to lay a few of them before you this morning as we think about standing firm in the gospel and how the world challenges us and threats that. First thing I want to lay before you is this. Our culture has seen fit to normalize divorce. We know the Bible teaches against divorce and that marriage is not designed for you to opt out when things are not working in your favor. It seems that divorce is just another legal process for humans, that we can just get out of it when it's not working out for us. What's even worse to think about is that the divorce rate among Christians is just as high as those who do not claim to be a Christian. That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Our culture has also been pressured into accepting and permitting gay marriage. Our country and our government not only permits it, but now they've moved to a place where they celebrate it. Third thing, and I see this third thing as a result of the first two. We are now in a phase of our downfall, our downward spiral, where gender identity and gender confusion is an issue. Now, brothers and sisters, young and old, listen, pay attention, because in this world that we live in, we are being indoctrinated to think that this is okay. Or that it's normal. And they can choose to be whomever they want to be. But it's science. And it's biblical. God made male and female. And what's worse to think about is if we dare say anything to someone or about this topic, we're labeled as bigots. Or we're speaking hate speech. Now, these are just a few things. And I, I, I didn't say this in the first service, but I, I want you to know this. Because I thought through this as I studied this week. Those three things are one of many. 
But I see them have just, those three things have been an ongoing thing that have stemmed from the sexual revolution that we saw in the 50s and 60s and where how that started to affect not only our culture, but it affected families. It was Vody Bauckham who said, so goes the family, so goes the nation. So our problem is not necessarily with just those things that I mentioned or that sin is running prominent. That is true. But I think underneath all that, we've lost sight of the importance that God has put on and ordained in the family. Amen? All right. Those are just a few things. And again, the church faces ongoing new and new issues every day. But I saw those as serious gospel issues. And I say that because they directly or indirectly threaten the gospel. These issues are threats because not only are they things that God is against, but they seek to normalize the very thing that Jesus came to die for, and that is sin. Amen? Let me add this before we go further, because I recognize that there are some who will hear this message today, this morning, or by uh, media online, and they will label this as some type of hate speech, or how could that pastor say that? Maybe there are some in this room who feel a little uneasy because you know someone who is experiencing some, one of those things or living in one of those particular sins. But dear friend, if you don't hear anything else from me in this part of the message, I want you to hear this. I love you. We, the church, love you. But you need to know that your sin does not define you. God has graciously provided a way for you to be redeemed and forgiven of your sin through his son, Jesus. But he has also given you someone to find your identity in. Amen? That is what Christians do. It's not what I think about myself or what this world thinks about me. I find my purpose and pleasure and also my identity in Jesus Christ. Amen? Christian, the encouragement to you is do not find your identity in this world. Do not find your identity in this culture. You don't find your identity in how good of a life group leader you are or how long you've been a member of a church. And you most definitely do not find your identity in your feelings. You know why? Because your feelings are swayed by your sinful nature. And they're also swayed by the world around you. So do not let your feelings be your God. Because God is God. And he alone determines what is right. He alone determines what is wrong. And he alone has determined what is true. Now Paul gave his life for this gospel. And even though it may look a little different for you and I, we are called to do the same. So church family, remember Jesus and do not be ashamed of this gospel. Now, here's the second thing I want to address, second knot I want to untie. All throughout the Bible runs this tension of divine enablement and human responsibility. Y'all follow me? What I'm talking about is God's sovereignty and human responsibility. There's this tension that runs all throughout the Bible, and it's not just in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament too. There's this tension of God's sovereign work and will, what he has decreed to happen in his created order, and it's put right alongside human responsibility. Now again, this is not just in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament. Job 42 verse 2 says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 16, 33 says this, the lot is cast into the lot in the lap, but it's every decision is from the Lord. Those two verses help us to see 
that nothing takes God by surprise. Everything is known by God. Now, why do I bring this to your attention? Well, for two different reasons, we see these things in 2 Timothy chapter 2. First, look at verse 1 of chapter 2. Paul commands Timothy to be strengthened. And there is one of the pictures of the tension we see of divine enablement and human responsibility. And what I mean is Paul wants Timothy to be strengthened to do gospel ministry, to pastor the people in Ephesus, but he wants him to do it under the power of God's grace. We see that in verse 1. But the logical understanding is that Timothy has a responsibility to do the work, and that is 100% true. But we know that Timothy cannot do it without the sovereign act of God giving him grace, which is why Paul reminds him of that. Second, Paul mentions that lovely five-letter word in verse 10 that we read just a few moments ago. I think some of us love to discuss it. Uh, We get hung up on it. We trip over it. We love to debate it. Uh, But it's that word of elect or the concept of election. Now, I'll hold back from commenting on that now because I want to do that in just a few moments as we walk through this passage together. Now, I would just submit this to you, dear friends. The Bible clearly teaches election. It's not something to be afraid of or shy away from. The fact that every person in here this morning is not here by random circumstance, or also the fact that anyone who has ever professed faith in Jesus Christ was foreknown before the world was spoken into existence. So let me also add this. I'm a human, just like you, and I cannot fully explain the complexities of this tension, okay? Y'all tracking with me here? I'm a pastor. I've, I probably know enough just to be dangerous. But I don't have it fully figured out. But I do know this. It's in the Bible, and it always works out according to God's plans and purposes. Now, if you will, let's look through these verses together for just a few moments. Look at verse 8. What I want to do is we see Paul telling Timothy to do these things and remember these things. I want to read through them walk through them for a few moments and see how maybe they actually fit into our context and apply to our own lives. And if you're following along with me in your notes, I gave you five things that I think we need to know from this passage. So if you're following along with me, here's the first thing. Look at verse eight. Paul says, remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel. Here's the first thing we need to know. We remember Christians that Jesus, we remember Jesus because he is the promised Messiah who conquered death. Jesus is the promised Messiah who conquered death. In this verse, Paul gives Timothy the means in which he is to be strengthened. And he gives him the means in which he is to remember Jesus. But there is something interesting to note here. Paul isn't just saying, hey, Timothy, because you're a forgetful person, I want you to remember Jesus. I think the command here that Paul is giving pushes Timothy towards remembering Jesus at all times. Because the truth is this, this is true for you and I. A lot of us will walk out of this room in just a few moments, having forgotten what we just heard, or will regulating the weight of Christ's sacrificial life and death to the back of our minds. And therefore it becomes unimportant. It's not the basis for how we act, talk, treat others, love others, and how we do things. So we need, just like Timothy here, to remember Jesus. Why? Because we need Jesus every minute, every hour of every day. Amen? 
Amen? We need Jesus. Remember him. Now, to elevate the significance of who Jesus is and this command to remember, Paul says, Jesus Christ. And why do I bring that to your attention? Well, instead of saying Christ Jesus, he said Jesus Christ. He flipped the order. In every other usage of the name of Jesus in 2 Timothy, Paul says Christ Jesus. But in this one specific command to Timothy, right here in chapter 2, Paul says Jesus Christ. And then he grounds it in two biblical foundations that are incredibly important. Look at what he says. He says Jesus is, number one, risen from the dead. And second, he is the offspring of David. Now, those two biblical foundations connect to the name Jesus Christ. Jesus was the one who was murdered, and then he rose from the dead. And Christ, which in the Hebrew and Greek language mean the anointed one, the one who was foretold in the Old Testament scriptures, the Messiah, the one who is now king of all kings. He's not just king of Israel. He's king of the universe. Dear friends, we have no reason to doubt who he is or what he has done. Everything about him that was written is true and has been promised and has been fulfilled. So, Christian, remember Jesus because he is the Messiah who has conquered death. Therefore, you have no room to fear death. You don't need to because that's when life truly begins. Secondly, look at verse 9. Paul says, I preach this gospel for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal, but the word of God is not bound. The second thing I think we need to know from this passage is this. Often suffering comes because of the gospel, not in spite of it. Often suffering comes because of the gospel, not in spite of it. For the apostle Paul, suffering and gospel ministry went hand in hand. But for those of us living in the West in the 21st century, this can seem weird or maybe even feel a bit inconsistent with what we see in our culture and then what we see in the Bible. But the reason this is so important for us to understand is because as we read accounts such as this one, we read uh, anything in the New Testament, we can read it, or we'll take Paul, for example, since we're in 2 Timothy. We can see something bad happen and think, yeah, Paul suffered in spite of the gospel, which means what? Well, it means that he suffered something without being affected by the purpose in which he is suffering. Now, dear friends, that is true. But in 2 Timothy chapter 2, where we're at this morning, that is not the case. The key words that help us understand this correctly is the antecedent phrase for which. Look at verse 9. Paul says, I have preached this gospel and for which now I am currently suffering, enduring through hardship because of it. Dear friends, if Paul never met Jesus on that road to Damascus, and if he never decided to give up everything in his life to preach the gospel, then there is no reason for him to be sitting in a prison cell awaiting his death. If Paul never met Jesus and was converted by this gospel, then we don't have a lot of the, old, the New Testament. God sovereignly acts in his creation, using bad for good, allowing suffering and promising 
to walk through it with us in hope. And Paul communicates this to Timothy. We all suffer in many ways and for many different reasons. The call to follow Jesus is costly. I think there are a lot of people in this room who know that, who've been following Jesus for a long time. I know this is not a popular idea to speak about or preach on, but even for myself, I think we all would do well to understand that faithfulness to Jesus and faithfulness to the gospel may very well bring suffering on either a micro or a macro scale. And if it does, Christian, listen, great. If it does, if you are currently going through something, if you have gone through something and you know you will go through something, good. See it as an opportunity to trust in Jesus and ask him for help. And remember that as a human, you and I were limited. We may feel confined in our abilities, but Paul says the word of God is never bound. Even in the moments of defeat, Paul's about to die here. The word of God stands victorious and will never be defeated. Amen? This is exactly why Paul could speak this way to Timothy in an underground prison cell. His efforts may be ending, but God's purposes in the gospel and plan for his life and our lives are never ending. Look at verse 10. We'll look at this third thing. Paul goes on to say, Therefore... I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The third thing I think we need to know from this text is this. Dear friend, you obtained salvation because someone gave their life for it. You obtained salvation because someone gave their life for it. Now, as we think about this, this is a glorious reality. And I want to do my best to communicate this. In fact, I, I wish we had a little more time. This is almost a sermon by itself, but I'll, I'll do my best to be clear and concise. Now, you may be thinking as I share that point with you, well, yes, Jesus gave his life so I could be saved, so I could obtain the salvation. And dear friend, that is 100% true, but that's not what I mean here. In this little verse, where Paul says he is enduring all things for the sake of the elect, I believe he means you and me. Amen? If you are in Christ Jesus, you are chosen. God chose you. You didn't choose him. God chose you. Now, while it is entirely possible that Paul meant, and maybe even thought about the people in his current cult cultural context, the people who would believe in Jesus, and maybe they lived around that specific time in history, I think Paul is also thinking of those who would believe in Jesus from the time of his death and onward. And I believe this because Paul uses an important word that has eternal implications. When Paul says elect, he's speaking about those whom Jesus died for, past, present, and future. The ones who God gave to Jesus as a promise for his substitutionary death on the cross. So Christian, this is much we have much to celebrate. Be encouraged this morning. Many people have given their lives so you could hear the gospel and believe in Jesus. Many people have given their lives for you to be here to, this morning, to sing in this room with air conditioning and hear the preaching of his... Many people have died in light of this. So what do we do? Like I said earlier, you and I may not die in a prison cell because of our faith in Jesus. 
but you and I can ensure that others hear the gospel by being faithful to Jesus today. Amen? Dear friend, obey the commands of Jesus. Join a local church. Be a part of a vibrant community of people who want to make his name known. And do this for future generations. Young person, college student, young adult, you may think, oh, it's just another Sunday. I'm going to church. Great. I'm I'm thrilled that you're here. But you have got to see the bigger picture. Because who knows what God is doing in this context in your life so that someone else may hear the gospel. Or a generation, five generations down the road, if Jesus hasn't come back yet, will hear the gospel. Because of your faithfulness to his church, to his word, to his commands. As we near the end of this passage, look with me at this section, uh, verses 11, 12, and 13. And this is where my title has come from. Normally, when we see an offset section in the New Testament, it's because it's an Old Testament reference. But here in 2 Timothy, that is not the case. The couple of verses that we see in 11, 12, and 13 are set off because they were seen as poetic hymns in Paul's day. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul has used this type of literature. He did this in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But here, Paul uses a Christological hymn to explain why it is so important for Timothy to endure and why it is worthy for us to consider enduring for the sake of the gospel. Look at verse 11. This saying is trustworthy, for if we have died with him, we will also live with him. Paul is referring to a spiritual death. If we deny ourselves and pick up his cross and follow him, we live with him. And then Paul goes on to say, if we endure, we also will reign with him. Here's the fourth thing I think we need to know from this text. We endure now so we can reign later. We endure now so we can reign later. Paul's life and ministry epitomizes this statement. Paul endured all things for the sake of the gospel. Philippians chapter 3, he says, I count all things as rubbish compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Paul knew his present day sufferings were absolutely nothing compared to the eternal glory that is to come. And dear friend, that is true for you too. If you are in Christ, that is true for you too. The second usage of the word endure, or this concept of endurance, connects to the first one that we saw earlier in this text. But for Paul, we see that he endured for two reasons. The first thing is this. He endured for the gospel that he preached. He endured for the Jesus that he met on that road to Damascus, and that saved him. He knew in his heart of hearts whom he had believed in. He said this earlier in 2 Timothy. And Paul determined that every last drop of anguish and or blood was eternally worth it. Second, Paul endured for the sake of the elect. Paul being in prison is not fun or as horrible as that looks because in humanly thinking, Paul's like, no, I've got more towns to visit. I've got more missionary journeys to go on. More people need to hear about Jesus. While he could have been thinking that, he's also thinking this is going to further the gospel. My imprisonment and my death will further the gospel. So Paul thinks about those who will believe, who have believed, and he uses that 
eternal word, elect. And he's thinking about that group of people that Jesus purchased when he died on that cross. Now, if I can put this in a more modern day context for us this morning, I would tell you this. What does enduring look like for us? Again, because the point I've been trying to make is suffering and enduring look different to us today than it did in Paul's day, right? Amen? What does it look like for us? Well, I would tell you this. I think it means a lot of things. Enduring means being faithful to your spouse in the midst of terrible circumstances. It means enduring through the most difficult and hurtful time in life when all hope seems lost. It means you faithfully love and serve your church by being here week in and week out and not being flaky for the sake of ease. We endure. It means you endure through awkward situations of persecutions when family and friends think you're crazy for your faith or the fact that you've decided to follow Jesus. Young people, it means you follow God's plan for sex and marriage by deciding to wait. It also means breaking the cycle of dysfunction in your family history to create a more God-oriented picture in your immediate family. Enduring means, as a parent, we do the hard things now instead of choosing the cultural way of ease, which we know will have ripple effects later on. It may even mean risking your reputation or social status for the sake of standing up for what God loves and standing against for what God hates. Dear friend, you and I can endure now with gospel hope so we can reign with him later. Amen? Fifth and final thing I want you to know is this. This comes from verse 13. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Fifth thing I want you to know is God is radically committed to himself. God is radically committed to himself. Now, this last one is a great one for us to conclude our time with because it explains the very reason that God can be faithful to anyone or anything. Paul says, he is faithful for he cannot deny himself. When you and I hear this phrase, I'm just speaking like as a broken, sinful human creature here. I think sometimes when we hear this phrase, the very first thought that you and I have is, yes, God is faithful to you and to me. And while that is wholeheartedly true, I will not deny that. We cannot forget that he is faithful to us because he is first faithful to himself. Amen? God is self-sustainable and he does not need us. Therefore, we benefit from his faithfulness to himself. And here in this poetic hymn, Paul reminds Timothy of an unshakable truth. God cannot deny himself. Now, what does this mean? In simple terms, it means that God cannot deny his nature. He cannot deny his character. If he is good, then he will be good. God is love, then he will show love. Contrary to what you and I may think, Paul says God cannot deny himself. He cannot deny his character. And Paul aims to remind Timothy And when we are faithless, as Timothy struggled with, Timothy was a young, timid, unshakable type of guy who was worried about his youthfulness and what people thought of him. And he had nerves and anxiety about pastoring and shepherding this group of people in Ephesus. And Paul's reminding him, hey, even in your inconsistencies and your faithlessness, God is always faithful. 
When we let our fears and our doubts get in the way of being faithful to him, God does not stop being faithful to us because we have been grafted into his family. We change, but God never changes. Amen? So in spite of our inconsistent spirit and will and faithlessness towards him, God will always be faithful to his children because he is faithful to himself. We receive faithfulness in light of Christ's substitutionary death for sinners on that cross. In fact, if you think about it, the cross itself is a testimony to God's faithfulness. Amen? God promised Jesus a group of people if he went and paid their debt. And he did. God crushed his son to inherit a group of people. God is about his glory. And dear friends, that is a really good thing for you and me. I know that's easier said than understood. God being about himself is a good thing. I want to close by inviting you to respond in faith as we think about what we heard in the preaching of this word. As David and the team come up to lead us in a song, I want you to know whatever is going on in your heart, whatever you may have heard this morning, however God is leading you. This is one thing I love about the preaching of God's word is I could talk to five different people and they could say, hey, this spoke to me in five different ways. So whatever the Lord may be doing in your heart and in your life currently, let me invite you to respond. We'll have people in the back, at the Welcome Center and over here at the Coffee Center. We'd love to talk with you. Uh, if you're new to this church, or if you're new to even hearing about Jesus, we'd love to answer any questions you may have. But let me invite you, Christian, to, to respond to this truth. God loves you, but he is also radically committed to himself, and that is a good thing. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for grace and mercy even in this moment. Through the preaching of your word, uh, the singing of these songs, I thank you for what you have done for us by sending your son in the likeness of human to die in their place and pay their debt. God, thank you for that salvation that we obtain through Jesus' death, but also through the faithfulness of those who were martyred and suffered well for their faith. Father, I know there's a lot to learn from this concept, even myself. Um, I've said before from this platform that Christianity in America is somewhat of an anomaly where we know that there are different circumstances going on in other parts of the world. And Lord, we know that we live this way and can worship freely because of your kindness and grace, so help us not to take it for granted. Father, I pray for us as a people that you would help us to not be shaken by gospel threats, by what the culture tries to tell us is right. Lord, that we would look to you and your word and your statutes and say, I'm staking my life in this. Help us, Lord. Give us grace for those moments. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you were encouraged by today's message, subscribe and rate us wherever you stream your podcasts. To learn more about the venue at Southcrest, visit us online at southcrest.org or on Facebook and Instagram by searching for Southcrest Baptist Church. 